In mid-March, when the reality of the coronavirus pandemic began to avail itself, I made a conscious decision to momentarily alter the manner in which I publicly discussed Scott Morrison. It was an intensely difficult decision for someone who pretty much entered public discourse with the primary objective of removing him, but it was based primarily on two factors. The first was a sense of patriotic duty, and not towards Scott Morrison, but towards the need for unified action in a time of what seemed a genuine existential crisis. I recognised that our national capacity to react to this pandemic was heavily reliant on the entire community understanding their individual obligations, objectives, and exactly what was at stake. Now, I literally have a Twitter thread on my account that is about 40 tweets long listing individual reasons why I don't trust Scott Morrison. But I knew that at that time, I had an obligation not to undermine his messaging to the nation. Secondly, I had no real reason to criticise him. Now, it is crucial that you do not misconstrue what I mean by this. I wasn't criticising Morrison's policy decisions and actions at the start of this pandemic because A, I'm not an epidemiologist, and B, I have a lot of faith in the epidemiologists that I knew were around him. Now, I preach about trusting experts, and at this point I heard no experts offering a strong counterview to the experts standing beside Scott Morrison. I therefore practiced what I preached and encouraged anyone that listens to me to listen to the experts. Now, two months on, and it is indisputable that we as a nation have evaded the catastrophic effects of this virus. Whether it is due to our geography, our population density, or our weather will no doubt be studied endlessly in the ensuing years. But if opinion polls are anything to go by, it is clear that a huge proportion of our nation are attributing a collective dodging of the COVID-19 bullet with this guy. And I get it. If things had gone wrong, I would be the first person to be laying the knife in. The fact things have gone relatively well for us, well, surely he deserves some of the plaudits, right? Well, fine. If you are going to congratulate Morrison for his handling of this crisis, I want you to point out exactly what decisive action, what policy, what what crucial step it is that distinguishes him as a leader. Now, many will point to Morrison's travel ban on China, a move that at the time was condemned by China and deemed not necessary by the WHO. Was it brave? Possibly. Possibly less so when you realise Donald Trump declared his travel ban on the day before, the same Donald Trump that is being lambasted by his country for acting too slow. Now, certainly it could suggest that our travel ban was stricter, and, and it was. However, the problem remained that we continued to allow travel from from the USA, where the bulk of our international infections were coming from, for weeks after the China travel ban. But that, of course, all came to an end when we effectively closed our borders by requiring a two-week quarantine of all international arrivals. Another brave, decisive call? Sure, but only if you ignore the fact that Jacinda Ardern enacted the exact same policy days before him, as had a host of European leaders. Now, to be clear... I am not criticising Morrison for enacting these policies when he did. They may have been the entirely appropriate time to put them in place. What I'm saying is they were not moments of brilliance from him. He, He was literally following the lead of what almost every other nation was doing. So what about the lockdowns that have been crucial to flattening the curve? Yes, it was Morrison's press conference that we all watched to find out what our new rules would be. The problem was... The actual regulations of each state and territory had already been announced by their respective state leaders because not only did they have the sole constitutional power to enact them, but because, by all media reports, it was the states who were pressuring Morrison to enact these lockdown laws sooner. 
Now, the JobKeeper payments that have been crucial to preserving the livelihoods of millions of Australians, and, and I, along with many on the left, were shocked to see Morrison sign us up to a $130 billion program to look after those that really needed help. It came as no surprise then that crucial to this policy was the involvement of ACTU Secretary Sally McManus and former Labor frontbencher Greg Combe. It was a very Labor-style policy that I have no doubt would have been condemned by Conservatives were it enacted by a Labor government. So, do I give Morrison credit for anything? Yes, I, I do. Morrison called the coronavirus a pandemic before almost any other world leader, and that really does matter. And yes, he kind of conflicted it with inconsistently suggesting we all attend mass sporting events just two days before lockdowns. But when compared with this guy... I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or... And this guy... I, I, I'm shaking hands continuously. I was, at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands and uh, uh, I think it's very important. Suddenly Morrison's communication on the crisis sounds mature, informed and calming. The problem is, is this really where the bar is? The fact that Morrison wasn't suggesting we infect ourselves with bleach and he hasn't gloated about shaking infected people's hands before almost dying from coronavirus suddenly elevates Morrison to the status of a 60% approval rating? Now, I remind you, this is the guy who literally went on his third holiday of the year whilst his country was experiencing its worst national disaster in modern history. This is a guy who still refuses to answer questions about government corruption, costing taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars that he is clearly implicated in. This is a man who continues to push for a tax cut for the wealthiest 2% of Australians that will cost us $90 billion. This is the man whose first major legislative agenda focused on laws that would enact unprecedented privileges and protections on anyone who can claim to belong to a short list of approved religions. This is still the same guy. He is not suddenly a messiah because he managed to not screw this up. Now, Australia has done amazingly well in this crisis. We have done well because our scientists were one of the first in the world to recreate the virus in a lab, thus giving us a crucial head start and becoming one of the best testers in the world. Australia has done amazingly well because our state health departments have stood up contact tracing teams with literally no experience and meticulously traced and tested the contacts of every single positive case in the country. Australia has done amazingly well because of the bureaucracies associated with our public health system. They had extra time to prepare and they used that time industriously. And Australia has done amazingly well because we are an educated country and we generally attempt to elevate those experts to positions of influence in. And in this instance, our Prime Minister chose to follow the advice of these experts. Now, does this make him a better choice for Prime Minister than Anthony Albanese? Well, it's very difficult to say because we'll never really know how Albanese would have handled this crisis, right? But we do have a crucial insight into just how seriously he would have taken it. And that's this. It's the fact that for the majority of this pandemic, You've hardly heard a word from him. Because just like me, he realised that the nation he wishes to face, to lead, faced a peril that was real, that people's lives are at stake, and that confronting this crisis as a unified nation was more important than his short or possibly even long-term political career. Now, before the pandemic, 
Albanese was beating Morrison in the polls as preferred Prime Minister. He is now languishing at around 30%. This is in no small part due to the fact he has chosen to stay out of the way to allow Morrison to act as the conduit from health experts and to provide support for any legislation Morrison needs passed. Now, how would Morrison have acted were he in opposition? Well, equally, we will never know. But perhaps an insight can be gleaned from the Victorian Liberal Party opposition who have attacked and abused the Labor Premier for enacting policies that are only marginally stricter than Morrison's own guidelines. Now, I get there is a natural inclination to rally behind a leader at times of national crisis. The leaders of France, UK and Germany are all enjoying a rise in the polls. But if we misunderstand Morrison's role in this pandemic, we will see an early election and a presumed mandate to enact ultra-conservative policies he could never have dreamed of before. By all means, do not rewrite history. You don't have to condemn Morrison for anything he did during this pandemic. You can just accept that there was one correct course of action to take here, and Morrison chose that. You can then say that any reasonable person in that position would have taken that same course of action, that Albanese supported him the whole way because he would have done the exact same thing if he was in that position. But when the economy of this country has to be rebuilt, you need to ask yourself, who do you want rebuilding it? The guy who spent his life fighting for the working conditions of Australians, or the guy that has committed to giving tax cuts to the wealthy? If we don't make the right choice, if we don't step back and examine Scott Morrison in the correct full context that he exists in, it will almost irreversibly shift our country into his ultra-conservative mould for years to come.